Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. Coming up, Brooklyn is known for its small batch artisanal products, from hand macrame hanging succulent planters to mayonnaise artfully blended with eggs from the freest of free-range chickens. But what about small batch artisanal erotica? I cream up a lot. I can hear it. I hear it gurgle, but only a little bit, like a macaroon, but I am the filling to the macaroon. And my mom won't be proud of this or me. And then it's carnival in September, in July. In late May, just before the beginning of Pride, gay Twitter went apeshit over the following tweet. A few reminders for Pride Month. One, large corporations just want your money. That's true. Two, lesbian exclusion is ugly. 100%. Three, trans women of color are the ones that lead the fight for our rights. Amen. Four, please don't bring your kinks slash fetishes to Pride. There are minors at Pride and this can sexualize the event. Huh? The thing is, when you take the sex out of homosexuality, you get homouality, which doesn't even make sense. At most of the Pride events I went to, instead of men in leather handing me lube and poppers, representatives of MasterCard handed me kombucha and keychains. When did Pride get so prude? Here to talk about the evolution of queer sex are two professional smut peddlers. Mitch Anzoni is the founder, publisher, and editor of Impatient Press. Welcome to 112BK. And Ellie Warman is a writer, uh, and your latest work is Whore Foods. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Mitch, you published Whore Foods. Um, it's described as a guaranteed feast for sore thighs. It is. Is this the first time that you guys have worked together? No, we uh, published uh, her chapbook, I believe, in 2016, uh, How to Become a Lesbian, which is an uh, instru- uh, instructional guide uh, on how to become a lesbian. I don't want to spoil <laughs> too much, but how do you become a lesbian? It's not that hard. <laughs> you just start with your fingers. Okay, great. But you'll have to buy the book to find out more. Yeah. Mitch, how would you describe the works that you publish at Impatient Press? Um, it's mostly a mixture of uh, pornography and poetry, and often both of them combined. Mm. Yeah. Can you talk about an, a, an example of the combination of poetry and pornography? Totally. We actually just, um, I mean, essays, we kind of, I try to publish books that I think should exist that just don't, that aren't out there. Like books I want to read that haven't been realized yet. Uh, And a recent example is we actually just published this book. um, uh, It's like an essay length, a little zine called Salty Wet. And it's written by my friend uh, Tiffany in Hong Kong. And it's about um, the protests that are happening over there in Hong Kong Mm -hmm. recently. But it's also kind of about um, her des- sense of desire um, for the city that's kind of slowly dying. And she interweaves all these great um, old Hong Kong porno magazines um, that were uh, made in the late 80s to raise money for the Tiananmen Square protests, which is actually what the cover is. So she like writes through a lot of that and also has a very poetical sense of kind of like Hong Kong's like self-image and you know how it uh, you know kind of desires itself in this weird self-devouring nostalgic way. Um, so I was really stoked to, to, to publish that and you know it's been kind of a a lot of fun making it and people from all over the world are kind of like stoked to hear about this, you know, the stories happening in Hong Kong and also to, you know, check out the salacious photos and opinions within. Sex sells, as they say. Um, That sounds amazing. Where can people find this book as well as everything else that you put out? Do you sell Um, to like independent bookstores? Yeah, we have a few throughout the city, but your best bet is to go to our uh, website because due to the nature of the cover, sometimes, you know, 
bookstores won't stock it. Got it. Um, we actually have a funny, but you can go to our website, impatientpress.bigcartel.com. But I actually have a pretty funny story about trying to stock this at a at a bookstore. And we'll say uh, that the cover <laughs> is sexually explicit, it's a so explicit. We're, we're probably blurring it out. I don't know what we're doing on the you're gonna, show. You're but... gonna blur this out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but just you know, for our viewers at home, let me tell you, it is explicit. Yeah. Um, but I actually recently I was walking by the Center for Fiction down the street, mm -hmm. and I saw that they had a little window display. And I was like, you know what would look good in there? Uh, Whore Foods. So I uh, snuck a copy in to the, to the window display there. Have you had a more formal conversation <laughs> with that bookstore or other bookstores about stocking it? And people have been like, oh, no, this is too racy for us. Yeah, I went to the Marc Jacobs bookstore. And, then they, and <laughs> it was these like two really well-dressed guys. And I was like, what about lesbian porn? And I like showed them. And then they were kind of like, oh, yeah, we'll get back to you. And then I asked if Mark was around, and they were like, oh, he's busy. But, yeah, uh, you know. he's definitely busy. Yeah. And we had trouble just printing it. A lot of like <laughs> yeah. actual printers refused to print the book. Really? Yes. Uh, we went through four printers to get this, this book made. And um, I think my favorite fact about that is um, one of them like rejected us because they have Christian values. They were like, we don't want to print this sort of thing. It goes against our values. There was kind of like an implied mes message that I was going to go to hell. And then they um, sent me their Christmas card later. <laughs> like, 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 like it was like an automated like newsletter because I because they had my email address because I submitted the quote and then it was just like Merry Christmas from Colorado's Graphics and I was just like. No. <laughs> like, I do not I accept like, your Merry Christmas. Yeah, it's not a Merry Christmas. Do you I'm still feel like this is um, like the equivalent of a Christian baker who's not going to bake a, a wedding cake for a gay couple? They're not going to publish your lesbian smut? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, we should have took them to the Supreme Court. Yeah, take them. it all the way to the Supreme Court. We will. Now. They went out of business, I'm pretty sure, actually. So. <laughs> That's what they could have used <laughs> yeah. your business after all, yeah. it turns out. Um, so, Ellie, what is Horror Foods? So Whore Foods is an erotic novel. It's from the perspective of a cashier at an unnamed organic grocery store. And it kind of goes through her day and her encounters with customers and capitalism and whiteness and all these really horrifying things. And she gains some sense of control through becoming embodied and having pleasure with herself, with others. And it started out as a newsletter, is that right? Yeah, it used to be something. I had subscribers, and I would send it out periodically, like every other month, a little clip of it, so it was serialized. And then Mitch approached me, and we combined it to make it a whole book. And what was it about the newsletters that LA was sending out that you were like, this is something I have to publish? Uh, I mean, they're just they're really hot, and it's just really funny and clever in a way that I feel like um, a lot of erotica isn't, and it elevates to me the. It's a novel to me, like it is. It's like it's like an erotic novel. And I feel like a lot of people treat erotica as though it's kind of like a, uh, you know, like it's porn, like it's just like kind of this throwaway thing you use, or it's a it's an object to be used. Where I was really blown away by the attention and detail that LA put into her writing to erotica, and that it was clearly not meant just to be used, but like reflected and thought upon. And it was really, I don't know, it was really empowering um, to read and just be like, see that there's that talent out there. And I was like. You know, think about what I could publish next for the press, and I, I just thought it was natural because we had put out, you know, how to become a lesbian, and it was such a big. Uh, I just remember this email we got from it was like a 18 year old from Michigan, was it? Do you remember this? Do you remember yeah. this like message? Oh my God, and I'm she, picturing her Google how to become a lesbian, yeah. and, and she got the book, and she Wait, was like, really? she sent a really beautiful story about like how. I mean, you can. I mean, if you remember, but it's like I remember being like, she was like, I you know, found this book and there was a girl I had a crush on and I finally like asked the girl out and they went like on a date and I was just like blown away and I remembered that happening when I published LA before and I was like, 
I bet we can make that kind of magic happen again. You can tell yeah. that Christian publisher that the lesbian <laughs> agenda is in full force. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> do you see a distinction between erotica and pornography? And if so, how do you define that? For me, I guess erotic always comes from my knowledge of, there's an essay by Audre Lorde called Use of the Erotic. And a lot of my, the way I use erotic is through her language, which is like the erotic is kind of self-empowerment. The erotic challenges imperialism. It's like anti-government. You're just feeling your body in ways that like mass society doesn't want us to because they know that's like how we gain power. So I see it as that. And it is, I do like the label porn. I don't have a problem <laughs> with porn, mm -hmm. but I like grouping them kind of together because it is about like pleasure and these brief moments, but it also is like building towards a political future that we want. Will you read a passage from Horfood? Sure. I'll read the first paragraph. Great. I get creamy standing straight, legs apart. I cream up a lot. I can hear it. I hear it gurgle, but only a little bit, like a macaroon, but I am the filling to the macaroon. And my mom won't be proud of this or me. I could wear this apron and not be overexposed if I didn't turn around. All I wanted was an hour, an hour in bed to get this out. This starts in the crease between thigh and hip bone. It is just a tingle, then a little warmth. Then I get creamy, a little cream first, and I have to touch it. If I don't touch it, I will die, and I will take her with me. I'm sorry I said that. Forget I said that. It has a real poetic cadence at the same time as being very filthy. Um, <laughs> does food factor into uh, Whore Foods the whole way through? Yes. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, buy the book to find out more. We talked a little bit in the intro about sort of the sanitization of LGBT culture as there has been growing acceptance uh, towards our rainbow community. Um, I'm wondering, do you feel like it's a political stance that you're taking by publishing like explicit gay smut? Yes. <laughs> I mean, there, please say more. There's a, <laughs> I mean, I don't. I think the images speak for themselves. I think images are all charged with political power, and the fact that we see this kind of erasure of, um, you know, just explicit sex. I think a lot about um, C. A. Conrad um, when I think about these images. I know it's kind of weird. He's a poet, but he has this line that's basically just like, "I'm not going to censor my language. I'm around your kid. Like, I'm just going to like, I'm out here. This is who I am. I'm going wild." And I think of that because I've displayed. Um, these these books at book fairs and like I have we have another book uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a magazine it's a porno zine called Impatient um, which LA has also contributed to um, and the cover of it is uh, someone you know it's someone getting a rim job and there's some swans all around them and it's very big it's very explicit it's very beautiful painting and we we have it up at the book fairs and kids love it because they run up and they laugh at him they're just like he he's like kissing their his butt like it's not like you know it's not like the kids also, are like no swans yeah exactly <laughs> and like you know i see like parents walk by and occasionally they'll suffer, shuffle their kids by or like you know da 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 but um you know i think it's like i think we ascribe more fear 
to like the power that we think these images have than that they actually have. It also reminds me of a bag that we collaborated on once. Yeah. We made this great bag, like for like, like you a know, tote bag. No, 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 a for plastic a plastic bag, bag for like plastic to bag. Put, trash. Okay. Yeah, for trash. Well, uh -huh. for trash or for or books. yeah, putting anything in for whatever you get at the Trashy mall. Books. Yeah, uh, and on it it said, um, "Sex without fear, impossible." And I just remember people loved it. And then this one um, couple came up to me, a straight couple, and they were just like, they like put our arm around each other and they were kind of like, we have sex without fear. And I was like, it's like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> sure, I was like, sure. sure. I mean, all right. Yeah, <laughs> like, sure. You prove a point like, in you, some way. Apparently <laughs> felt a little uh, affronted by that. So to the point of porn and erotica's place within the LGBT community, LA, there's sort of these like two camps or two mm -hmm. schools of thought specifically around lesbian porn. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between sort of like the on our backs and the off our backs schools and why some why some lesbians are like porn is dehumanizing and degrading mm -hmm. and part of the patriarchy and some lesbians or queer identified women are like, no, it should be celebrated. Right, I think it's super complicated because a lot of porn in the industry, like all things under capitalism, comes from patriarchy. And that's like how the money is made. So I can understand a lot of the critiques, but I also think it's important for us to make our own porn. And there's a lot of porn that's happening that's made by like queer women that deflects from the male gaze and doesn't care about it. And I think that's really powerful and it disgusts them actually. And that's like what I want to do more of because I think with lesbian sexuality, a lot of it is either seen as like a fetish for men. Like I remember walking out with my girlfriend, this happened to me multiple times actually, not just one time, but people being like, can I fuck you both like a random man? And so it's just like pretty common. So there's that idea, but then there's also ideas like lesbian bed death and like lesbians aren't sexual. They just like love each other. They don't like fuck each other. Right. They're only sexual when a man is looking at them and or participating. Exactly. So that's why I find it kind of important to say like, yes, and. And in this book, it's complicated because like there are times the cashier is like implicated in all these things. Like she performs patriarchy. She is white. She like benefits from whiteness. And. It's gross, and I think that's where we can begin to kind of formulate these new ways of being and these new ways of being with each other because sex is complicated. It's really, really hard to have sex with another person. Like, okay. there's so much, like, communication, vulnerability that has to happen, and, like, conversations. It's complicated. So I want to just not see anything as, like, easy, but, like, enter that weird zone where everything feels, like, scary, I suppose. Right. If, um, if you think sex is easy, maybe you're doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You it's know, an interesting, it's interesting to, to the point about this 18-year-old from Michigan who Googled how to be a lesbian. I think she was from Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just say it's yeah. Michigan. Michigan is a stand-in for many <laughs> states. Um, I'm thinking of lesbian pulp novellas from the 50s yes. with titles like The Delicate Vice or Satan Was a Lesbian. Yes. Um, yes. And it was the first opportunity that a lot of women who didn't know why they were different. It was the first opportunity that they had to maybe see themselves reflected. Mm -hmm. LA, do you see your work continuing that sort of tradition? I hope so. I am like a very like romantic, sentimental person and I really love love. And so these books opened me up to not only like lesbian sexuality and like lesbian communication, but also just like the idea that I can be in love, which is something that 
is not in media as like as well documented like lesbians can't be in love unless they're dead unless it's tragic yeah. or <laughs> one of them leaves the other woman for a man yes exactly happy ending yeah hetero happy ending i like you also teach erotica writing workshops mm-hmm. is that right yes are, are those for any specific type of person can anyone go and what is it like helping people unleash their erotic writing beast it is amazing. Um, anyone is welcome. There Sometimes there's like an application process, but generally anyone is welcome. The people who choose to take it are generally, I would say, 98% queer women. So it, and I really value like creating that space. Um, the class, it's a lot about the senses, like touch, working with a partner, just kind of doing like a delicate touch for like 10 minutes really slow and then writing about it a lot of stuff is like meditation just working on embodying working on feeling and walking through the world in a different way and like stopping to write so it's a lot about just kind of being in your body and writing through that Mm -hmm. accessing sensorial language yes for sure um, Mitch, you had a recent run-in with the Whitney Museum. I did. Is that right? <laughs> I did. What yes. happened there? Um, well, we I recently came into possession of some uh, newspaper machines, like old coin-operated ones, mm-hmm. and um, I did my homework and I looked up the law. And and anyway, I went to make sure because I was like, how can I place this machine on the sidewalk legally without like the NYPD like droning my house? And um, turns out that you're allowed to place, you just need the written permission of the DOT, you just send a spreadsheet. Uh, so I did that and I got the written permission from the DOT. You just send a spreadsheet to the DOT? Yeah, like shows, what's on the spreadsheet? Shows the location of, it's where you want to put your news box, what it measures, what's the name of the um, publication, is it insured? You have to buy insurance for the machine, which is fun. Um, and I put it out front of the Whitney. And I did it to sell uh, my new erotica magazines that we we're doing, including Whore Foods. Um, we were distributing out of it. And uh, I came back a week later, and it was gone. Uh, the machine was just gone. And I went to the Whitney, and the security guard was very helpful. He said he assured me that it was not them. He was working the whole day. And then the next day, I get a call, and it turns out the Whitney did, in fact, um, <clears throat> obliterate my entire uh, machine. When and, you say obliterate, what did they do? Um, in graphic, it was told in graphic detail uh, that they took it to a recycling facility and ch- turned it into sheet metal. Apparently, they stomped it down. And How it specific? Into, um, and they, what about the magazines contained therein? Oh, they were all destroyed. So <laughs> all my hard work was uh, completely destroyed by uh, the Whitney. Good thing so, you had insurance. Not only, well, the insurance only covers if people get injured. Because uh, <sighs> yeah, so I wrote them a letter, um, a very. Um, strongly worded email. The person who helped install it was actually a lawyer, so he was able to help me kind of draft up this crazy email. And then, long story short, um, I got fully reimbursed, and I got a letter of apology um, from the Whitney. So I uh, made a poster of that apology, and I put the two new uh, newspaper machines that I have uh, right in front of the main door, uh, with the you know right outside the steps, uh, with the blessing of the DOT to distribute these posters that show the uh, letter of apology. So the, the new newspaper ki- newspaper kiosks are dispensing the letter of apology, not queer erotica. Well, there's two. There's one that's dispensing posters, including the letter of apology, and then there's one that's dispensing uh, queer erotica. Okay, so yeah. it's right out front of the Whitney if people want to go. Yeah, yep. Can they purchase Whore Foods? They this? certainly can. L.A. Mitch, thank you so much for thank joining you. me. Of course, it was a blast.
Labor Day may be a ways off, but we're going on summer hiatus, so we're getting a jump on our West Indian Day parade coverage. There was a time when the annual Labor Day gathering drew a few hundred spectators. An early founder said that 500 was a good turnout. Now, in its 52nd year, it draws millions along the Eastern Parkway parade route in Crown Heights. And in a borough where people of Caribbean descent make up nearly 20% of the population, the influence of the West Indies is felt far beyond the parade. Here with me now are Rhea Smith, the first vice president of WIADCA, the West Indian American Day Carnival Association. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And Shelley Worrell, founder and chief curator of Caribbean. Welcome to 112VK. Thank you. So Rhea, tell me a little bit about the origin of the parade. When did it start? And originally it was a carnival parade, right? So why is it happening in around Labor Day? Well, carnival in New York in general um, really started in Harlem in the 20s came to Brooklyn in the late 60s. And with that, the parade itself has always been a wonderful celebratory experience of costuming, pageantry, um, music, cuisine, of course, and all these wonderful things. It started in February, which is normally when most carnivals take place in the Caribbean or the home where most people come from. And of course, it was very cold. And so it graduated to warmer, um, temperatures and warmer months so that we could all experience it and be outdoors to display that wonderful artistry of that talent and the food and the excitement of what we call New York's greatest show. And you Earth. said it moved to Brooklyn in the 60s? About 67. Yeah. Why the decision to move it to our borough? Um, you know, a number of things graduated from Harlem into into having to expand, not having probably enough space. I mean, I, clearly I was not around at that time. But with that, the organizers wanted to do something different. They brought it to Brooklyn so that Brooklyn, which clearly was very diverse from even back then, wanted to be able to have something to call their own. And so with that, they put their heads together as a collect collective body and created a movement. Um, you know, immigrants came to the country you know, put a lot of work in, created impact and contributions and wanted to have to be proud of that and have something of home to remind them of whence they came. So it's an amazing party, obviously. But Shelley, tell us about why it's more than just a party. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times when, especially now with, with the advent of social media, a lot of us are thinking about Caribbean culture as just sort of like whining and music. Um, and there's so much more, um, you know, when, when you sort of peel back the layers and you really get into uh, Caribbean culture, there's really a lot more. Um, there's food, as, as Rhea mentioned. Um, there's film. There's art. Right. And and we have a really, really diverse and not only are we you, you talked about Brooklyn having being home to 20 percent of Caribbean or West Indian population, but it's also the largest and most diverse Caribbean population out of the outside of the Caribbean itself. So really everything that you have back home, you can find here. And I think that that really makes Brooklyn really special and unique. What are some of the other events that happen around the parade? Oh, there are several. Mm -hmm. uh, the organization is a year round entity establish that. We work with several nonprofits and other city agencies to provide immigration forums, youth programs, youth development arts and culture programs, steel band workshops, wire bending, uh, mass costumes. We work What's with wire bending? Oh, wire bending is an art form. Tell me so, more, please. Yeah. So when you see those large 15, 20 foot costumes and even the backpacks, those wonderful splendid things that they wear, there's a foundation for that. It's sort of like a skeleton, mm -hmm. sort of like this arm. And with that, you create that wire 
bend the wire, so to speak, because it's very flexible. You bend it and shape it into what you want it to be. Um, wire bending has been a dying art, but we're, we are reviving it through these wonderfully um, funded programs uh, throughout the city, particularly for youth and um, entrepreneurs. We prep everyone for New York Caribbean Carnival Week, which starts on the Thursday. It's usually the opening night. We have multiple genres. Thursday is reggae, Afrobeats, and soca night, where most of the music nowadays that you're hearing, even you know from the American artists, are fused with these rhythms called tropical rhythms. Well, they're reggae, Afrobeats, and soca mix. Uh, Friday daytime, we have a youth fest, which celebrates youth and young adults and college-bound adults. And then fri uh, Friday evening, we have the soca fest, which is brass fest. Brass fest is something from Trinidad culture that comes out of the music genre of soca. It's large live band music, not just DJ music, and it's celebrating all the soca artists from all around the island. So you have St. Lucia, Grenada, Trinidad, um, a number of others, St. Vincent. Barbados. That come. Barbados, yes. Saturday is the Junior Parade. It's basically a carnival for kids. And you see young kids, as young as, what, three months, four months, six, like babies. Wow. Mm -hmm. they start young. Babes in arms, mm -hmm. in costume. And that is our way of showing them and introducing them to their culture, the culture of their ancestors. And uh, Saturday evening, we have Panorama. Panorama, I would say, is a huge steel band competition, but largely leading up to Panorama Day. Wiatka and the steel band fraternity in New York particularly is probably the largest babysitting program in the city. That is absolutely free. If you're not in summer youth program, your parents can't afford to send you somewhere, you go to those steel band yards, you're learning music, you're learning to read it, you're learning to play it, you're competing, and you're feeling a sense of purpose and a sense of identifying with your culture and your peers. On Sunday, there is the large grand finale and some of the older artists like Mighty Sparrow. And um, like this year, we may be having Calypso Rose, who just fresh off of Coachella, rocked Coachella out. And I think she's what? She was something. the oldest. She was the old in history. How old is she? She's probably in her early 80s at this moment, wow, but she's amazing. Rocked Coachella. They had no idea who she was, but by the time she was done, they knew who Queen Calypso Rose was. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we're excited to be having these wonderful offerings for 52 years, and we're looking to, to young professionals and youth to carry on this legacy for sure. So you mentioned that one of the things that WIATCA does yes. uh, is also provide immigration support and mm -hmm. workshops. We've been hearing a lot, obviously, about stepped-up ICE raids, and often what we hear most about in media is um, people of Latin American descent. I'm curious if this these ICE raids have been hitting your communities particularly hard here in Brooklyn, um, and what advice you're giving people. Yeah, I mean, we've received a call last week from an elected official um, because they were having an emergency meeting. Um, and this person was of Afro-Latino descent, and they were looking to reach the Caribbean community. Um, and we know that one of the raids was in, or, you know, in Midwood, so really in, in central Brooklyn. Um, and of course, Sunset Park, which has a huge Latino uh, community. Um, and so really, we're redirecting people to the, the appropriate parties. I mean, there's a lot of materials out there um, that the electeds are, are putting out. Um, they're hosting a lot of public forums. And so we're just trying to help make sure that that the right people get connected to the right information. You know, it, it's it's an interesting time when you have been part of a, a, a legacy of immigrants who have contributed. And then now it's a different, you know, a whole different 
sort of voice in your community and you're wondering what to do, where to go, and you feel underappreciated. And so we're trying our best to make sure that um, everyone is covered and, and the resources are there for them, that they need it. Shelley, do you have a favorite part of the week leading up to the parade? Is there a favorite event of yours? Um, I, I would say it would be the parade itself. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm a masquerader. I, you know, it, it's it's really cultural because if you, it's when you're a masquerader, and after, I would say after that it would be panorama. But that has a lot to do with my father. He was a huge lover of of the steel pan, and EB would. I, mean, I grew up going to pan yards and in Brooklyn and in 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 the Caribbean as well. So namely Trinidad. And Rhea, do you remember your first parade that you attended? Oh, I might have been in my mother's stomach. <laughs> <laughs> my mom has not stopped playing mass, and it literally, while in her stomach, um, I participated, so to speak. But, um, you know, my very first time as an adult, I would say, was euphoric. It's an experience that cannot be explained with just simple words. It is the time of a lifetime. You know, we have this term, a lot of us, we live like life like we're playing math. It's, you don't, you don't get stressed. You don't feel um, downtrodden about anything. You think of your music, you think of your people, you think of your culture, and everything is okay. And Shelley, we heard a little bit about what Wiyadka does around, um, both around the parade and the rest of the year. What does Caribbean do? Tell us a little bit about your organization. Yeah, so we, uh, we present Caribbean culture, art, and film. Um, so it would, I would say that a lot of the, the programming that we present is an extension of what Wiyadka does. So it's really around Caribbean music, arts. We, we curate exhibitions, um, cultural programs. Uh, we host food tours. Um, so we were also very involved in the designation of Little Caribbean, which is the first um, in New York City and the world, and have hosted over a dozen walking tours um, along Flatbush and, and Ocean, um, Flatbush and Nostrand Avenues, excuse me. And so we've hosted people from all over the world, and they come and experience Caribbean food and culture, which has been really, really amazing. And we also have a traveling uh, Caribbean mobile cultural house or center. It's called the Caribbean House. And usually uh, every August it's parked at the Brooklyn Museum over for the last four years. And if people want to find out more about both of your organizations, where can they go? Carnival.nyc or weatcacarnival.org. 325 Rogers Avenue is our home. And the number is 718-467-1797. We look forward to seeing everyone out for Carnival Week. And Caribbean? Caribbean.com. And we have uh, littlecaribbean.nyc. Or you could follow us on Instagram. I am Caribbean. All right. Rhea, Shelley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank, thank you. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to review Woman 2 BK on iTunes and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman 2 BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 